Hello, I'm Amy Van Gelder and welcome to episode two of Wildcats Podcast, the podcast from Wildcats Conservation Alliance. This is the show which brings you closer to experts from around the world working to save wild tigers and their habitats. In each episode, we take a deeper dive into the threats and solutions affecting the future of this majestic species and bring you the most current tales from the wild. Today, we're going to be taken deep into the world of tigers as we explore the subject of population monitoring, which is very topical during this year of the tiger. Why, I hear you ask? Well, tiger populations plummeted from around 100,000 individuals in the early 20th century to 3,000 individuals in 2010, occupying just 7% of their original range. We were facing the very real prospect of losing tigers from the wild forever. Confronted with this dire situation facing wild tiger survival, world leaders and conservation practitioners met in 2010 to discuss strategies for tiger recovery. This meeting was the first in human history where country leaders converged to discuss the conservation of a single species. It was a big deal. The outcome was a global tiger recovery program that outlined strategies to double tiger numbers by the next year of the tiger in 2022. And here we are, it's 2022, 12 years have passed, and what happened to that goal to double wild tiger numbers? Well, as we record this, tiger range countries are undertaking their national tiger counts in preparation for the second global tiger summit in September this year. But we want to know how these countries even go about counting one of the most elusive big cats on the planet. So to answer that, we invited Dr. Jala, the Dean and Senior Professor at the Wildlife Institute of India to join us. Dr. Jala is a large carnivore expert and has worked on India's Project Tiger for many years, where he has helped with the design and implementation of the National Tiger Population Assessment. The last national assessment Dr. Jala conducted in 2018 and 19 was awarded a Guinness World Record for the largest wildlife survey ever with camera traps. So with the 2022 National Tiger Count well underway in India, we were lucky to catch up with him. To kick things off, Dr. Jala went back to the very beginning to see how India historically used to count their tigers. Historically, I think India was one of the only countries which had some semblance of a method to count uh, large carnivores. And the method evolved with counting lions in gear, uh, where uh, the lions were counted for the sake of hunting, basically. And the shikaris there, or the local uh, community who would assist the hunters in uh, shooting lions, uh, mastered the technique of identifying individual lions based on their pug marks. And that pug marks are footprints, uh, basically, the paw prints uh, of the large carnivores uh, on soil. And this technique was then extrapolated for tigers uh, by a forester at the name of Saroj Rai Chaudhary. So in, in those days, tiger densities were not that high. They were almost you know, hunted out quite a bit. So any large patch of forest had anywhere between 20 to 30 tigers. And if these tigers were monitored on a regular basis by individuals who knew field craft, um, they would look for idiosyncrasies in the footfall, uh, in the crevices of the pads, and how the shape and size of these uh, footprints were. And you could identify individuals to a great extent by continuously monitoring those tracks and identifying which animal has actually laid them. And the Bushmen in Africa can actually tell a hoof print of one ungulate from another 
and individuals from that, especially if they're struck one with an arrow, they can tell how the footfall has uh, happened and how they're staggering and where they fall. So it's a field craft. So people who have this field craft could identify individual tigers. Uh, however, this technique was malpracticed in the sense these experts, the naturalist experts, were replaced by bureaucrats who would then come in and say, okay, you have so many tigers based on the plaster casts of these uh, footprints. And that led to paper tigers in the country. And uh, subsequently, the numbers were highly inflated. And when we had uh, extinctions happen in some of our tiger reserves, like uh, Sariska, for example, the official record stated there were 19 tigers there when we had zero tigers, basically. So that's, that's the kind of mismanagement which happened of uh, technique gone wrong. Um, so we also had, I had a student who worked on the uh, multivariate statistical analysis of different measures of a pug mark. And we published in your journal, actually, Journal of Zoology at the Zoological Society of London where uh, we could identify individual tigers based on about 93 different variables measured from their pug marks. So it's possible to do that, um, uh, but uh, not something which is infallible when you have numbers becoming very large, uh, more than 20, 30 tigers, then even statistical methods fail to discriminate between individuals. So that was the ancient technique of how we used to count tigers. Now coming to the modern technique of counting tigers, uh, we rely on the unique stripe patterns of tigers to fingerprint them, basically. So there are remote cameras which are put out in the forest uh, and the tigers take selfies of themselves when they pass in front of these cameras. And once you have photographs, uh, we put them in a software which is developed by a, a colleague of mine in England, uh, Lex Hebe, uh, the software is called a pattern recognition software by the name of Extract Compare. And once it is in this database of extract compare, it gives you matches of all tigers which are there in the database and tells you which is the closest match. Then you use the human eye to actually say whether it is or it is not a match. Uh, and stripes of tigers are unique to each individual just like human fingerprints are. So that is the way we count tigers today. So during the last tiger count in 2018 and 19, nearly 27,000 camera trap locations were sampled in India that resulted in over 34 million photographs of which 76,651 were of tigers. Um, this effort has been acknowledged as a Guinness World Record. You've got the you've got the certificate. Amazing. So this is the Guinness Book <laughs> World Record. Yeah. Yeah, that was it in 2018 and 19. Yeah. yeah. So just beyond just having the people power, what is it that is so special about India that led it to be a leader in population monitoring? Well, there are two two aspects to it. One is um, um, the ease of conducting the surveys in India, um, where the forest has got an administrative hierarchy. So we have every forest, it's a British legacy which we have inherited basically for working the forest for because the sal trees and the teak which came out of India was very important for the British, to, for the railways especially. You know. So we have um, a division which is a very large area of forest. These divisions are divided into ranges and within ranges there are beats. So this is a hierarchy which is there and for every beat there's a beat guard. So he has, he knows his area, which is demarcated by physical boundaries. So a ridge top or a car track or a river. So these are natural boundaries. So you don't need a GPS or uh, anything else. You know, you know the boundaries which are naturally marked. So these beats are on the average about 15 square kilometers and there's a guard for every beat. Uh, so that, that hierarchy of administration allowed us to have access to almost every part of the forest in India. 
And um, that allowed us to put camera traps there. The other thing is the revenue. I mean, the money involved in it. Uh, India is reasonably well off now uh, in terms of uh, spending money for conservation. And monitoring tigers is one of the important exercises that we do, because if you know where your resources lie, only then can you manage them. It's very important to understand how our tigers are distributed. Not only to see the tiger is sort of an umbrella, even for the monitoring. We are monitoring all large mammals and most of the biodiversity under the umbrella of the tiger monitoring program, including weeds, including trees, including shrubs, um, invasives. Uh, all this is monitored in a protocol uh, when we monitor the tigers themselves because the cameras are indiscriminate on whose photographs they take. Elephants, wild dog, hyena, wolf, whatever animals which come in front of the camera photograph. And these photographs are then used to infer information regarding the status of these animals as well. So it's, it's a hierarchy of system. And um, so this large amount of money which is spent for doing this monitoring exercise uh, pays dividends at the end of it because a lot of policy and conservation issues then emanate deciding on where the populations are, which are the critically important populations, where they are dwindling and how the trends are over the years. So that's, that's the reason why a large sum of money is spent into the monitoring program. Uh, that said, I think the conservation agenda in India is driven by the people of India. Uh, it's not just the bureaucrats or the politicians or the forest officers or the scientists, but it's the people of India because it's ingrained in the, um, the ethics and the ethos. Uh, many of the religions uh, teach ahinsa, which is non-violence. So every life form is revered here. And uh, humans are looked upon as custodians of biodiversity and not the dominions of biodiversity. So when you are, you are a custodian, you are responsible for conservation. And basically that culture is what has allowed such high densities of humans, which poverty and uh, economic pressures of growth, development, all put together, despite all that, we still have almost an intact community of large carnivores, except for the cheetah, uh, all other large carnivores are still existing within the Indian subcontinent. And I think that's no mere minor feat uh, for India to boast about. Brilliant, yeah. And there are obviously like quite a, a wide range of habitats that tigers are found in across India. Um, what are the challenges of um, doing these tiger counts in those different habitats? Um, I, the, most of the tiger habitats were not much of a challenge because we have a large manpower in India, which is reasonably cheap. So while doing this exercise, we have close to about 44,000 people working to collect information across India to count these tigers. So there's a huge manpower available, which may not be possible in other tiger range countries. The challenge which we faced was only from one habitat, the mangrove forests of the Sundarbans, uh, where it was uh, very difficult to put uh, camera traps at desired locations inside the forest because that, you know, the human beings are on the menu card of the tiger there. So you are making yourself vulnerable to tiger predation when you walk in the Sundarbans because you sink knee deep in the swampy marshes of the Sundarbans and anything which moves or makes a sound uh, is tiger prey in that landscape. Um, so tigers attack humans and kill them there. Uh, so what we did was we changed the technique there and we lured the tigers to our camera traps instead of putting the camera traps where the tigers were. So we used bait uh, and uh, we put the cameras at sites which we could access by boat uh, so that the tigers would come there to take the bait and get photographed. So we had to modify the technique there a little bit. 
with all of these photos that have been taken, are they stored on like a big um, database for tiger sure. photos? Yeah. So we have close to about 4,000 individual tigers in our database, which includes all the tigers of India from the several years we've been monitoring. We've got data set from Nepal as well as from Bangladesh. So we have a regional database of tiger uh, images, uh, most of the tigers. And that helps us uh, check new tigers which come into the population. Tigers on the average survive for about 12, 15 years. You know? So there's a lot of turnover. But when, when tigers die, they can die a natural death or they're poached. If they're poached, the skins are very important and valuable and these skins turn up anywhere in the world. So uh, you know, you can, if you've got a picture of the skin, uh, through a seizure, through a legal uh, seizure of uh, a consignment or anything, we can match the skin to our live tigers. So we've done that uh, for many of the crime fighting things. And you know then, where are the origins of poaching, the historical site where this tiger was poached, and then where the trade routes are. So that helps us in crime fighting as well. So the database that we hold here, we close to about um, almost about 100,000 images of tigers which are stored in our database. Um, and that helps us do this kind of analysis. Amazing. So, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of data coming in. How often does India um, undertake the counts to check the population of tigers? And Because I know that you're currently doing, you're doing one at the moment, and, and they're, they're, they're huge, and the scale of them is huge. And are there any smaller counts in between? So the countrywide count is done once in four years, but all the tiger reserves, which we have 51 of them, are monitored on an annual basis with camera traps. So these are the source populations where the tigers actually breed and produce more offspring than you know, their tapa and they act as points from which tigers disperse into the larger landscape. So these populations are monitored annually uh, through camera traps and the countrywide assessment that is outside of tiger reserves as well as tiger reserves are all done uh, once in four years. With the, regards to the current country scale count, how you know how big is it? How many people does it involve? How many cameras? How many locations? Kind of what kind of area are you covering? So we cover close to about three hundred fifty thousand square kilometers of area where which is potential tiger habitat is covered in the assessment. Okay, and uh, as I told you, about forty four thousand people actually collect the information, and. Um, the issue is it's, it's based on three different layers of uh, data collection. The first layer of data collection is ground surveys, uh, which is done by forest officers and forest staff. And they do it in an occupancy framework where they go and visit these beats, which I talked about, and they do replicate walks, uh, looking for tiger sign and other animal signs. And it is recorded on a mobile application known as M-Stripes. So every time they come across an animal sign, it is photographed with geotag. So that, you know, you've got the lat long on the photograph and you can authenticate it that it is collected from that area. So this gives us a distribution of different species. So elephant footprints, tiger footprints, um, rhinoceros, for example, all these uh, signs are then accumulated and you can, when you map them on a geographical information system, you can look at the distribution patterns of these animals and you can actually account for detection. So it's not necessary that you might walk a trail in a forest which has tigers, but you might not find any tiger sign. So when you have replicate surveys, it allows you to actually correct for the detection probability, basically. And that is known as an occupancy survey. So this is done across India in this 350,000 square kilometers. Subsequently to that, uh, we then go and put in camera traps in not the entire coverage, but last, the largest coverage which we had was close to about 120,000 square kilometers, uh, which is a very large area. Uh, 
with about 26,000 or 28,000 odd camera trap stations, which I don't remember exactly, but it's in that Guinness Book of World Record. Yeah. So that many locations were covered uh, with camera traps, which, yeah, which gave us the largest wildlife survey status at that time. Hope to beat that record this time. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, and uh, with having obviously such a, a large scale, is um, is collaboration important for getting these um, these counts done? So the, there is a three-layer collaboration. Yeah, see, the National Tiger Conservation Authority from the central government coordinates the entire effort. The Wildlife Institute of India provides the technical expertise of how to do it, what to do it, the analysis, and um, the eco-geographical variables from remote sensing and so forth, which we download from databases, free databases across the world, and use it to model um, animal distributions and densities. So that all is done at our end. And then the state forest departments. So each forest department, uh, there are about 21 states which has tigers in India. And these state forest departments then collaborate with all of us put together to collect this information. We have NGO partners as well. Uh, like uh, Worldwide Fund for Nature, who works with us uh, in collecting information uh, in many of the areas. They assist the forest departments by hand-holding them, providing equipment and uh, uh, personnel, trained personnel to do the work. So that's the kind of collaboration which occurs here. Um, for collecting information, uh, even nature clubs, local nature clubs, college students, university students, and they all come and participate. In a, it's sort of a national event to collect information across the country. Brilliant. Um, and you said before how collecting these, these images has really helped with other species and understanding the kind of entire habitat. What kind of outcomes have come from previous counts? So for example, the one in 2018, ha- has there been any positive conservation outcomes based on the results of these, these counts? Sure. Um, yeah, it's, we've been very fortunate because our science is actually translated into conservation action with changes in policy and changes in law. So the Wildlife Protection Act, which was amended in 2006 to cognizance of our surveys uh, to develop the concept of core and buffer uh, and landscape scale conservation. So we could model corridors um, which connected tiger reserves or source populations across landscapes to ensure that tigers would then persist in the larger landscape for a long time. So based on population viability models, and the corridors and the size of these populations, we could model the size of ideal tiger reserves. And that's now become a part of the law. So if they have to declare new tiger reserves, they know at least 600 to 800 square kilometer area is required for 20 breeding units of tigers, which makes it a demographically viable population. So all this has just translated and come out of the research that we have done uh, through these monitoring programs over the long term. And the corridors which are mapped today have become a sort of a, uh, I would say, sacrosanct um, um, legislation. It's without actually a legislation, but any development which happens in these corridor habitats passes through a very rigorous scrutiny uh, through the National Board of Wildlife. And then the National Tiger Conservation Authority comes to the Wildlife Institute of India. And if there's infrastructure which is going to cut that corridor or have a barrier effect, then we suggest mitigation measures of animal passageways or how to design them, what kind of animals are present there, are there elephants or not, um, you know, that information. So it's not just the tigers which have benefited out of it, but the entire spectrum of biodiversity. Because if you can conserve tigers, then I think the rest of the animals are much easier to conserve. 
Thank you so much to Dr. Jalader for taking the time to give us an insight into India's world record-breaking population survey of tigers. Our next guest is a population ecologist and assistant director of Panthera's tiger program, Dr. Abhishek Harihar. Since joining Panthera in 2015, Abhishek has been primarily involved in standardising camera trap designs and more broadly population monitoring for Panthera's Tiger Forever program. He also contributes to developing metrics to evaluate the effectiveness of conservation actions across Panthera's Tiger Forever sites. With so much experience monitoring tigers under his belt, I had to get Abhishek's opinion on whether historical tiger counts could be used as a reliable baseline. Because with so many countries working towards the goal of doubling tiger numbers, how robust was the 2010 estimate of 3,200 tigers left in the wild? And would any new estimates made this year represent a true increase in tiger numbers or instead just illustrate how much better at counting tigers we've got? Yeah, so I think historically, I mean, if you go back into history and where tiger counting started, most often, you know, uh, since, you know, cameras didn't exist, most often people try to identify individual tigers from their pug marks or from the paw prints left behind in the sand, <laughs> in snow, and as you can kind of imagine, right? So uh, if, if a human went around walking on sand or on snow, you could look at the foot and say that, yeah, there's a human walking around, but you probably can't tell who it is. Uh, so that's the same case with tigers as well. Uh, but unfortunately, that became the method uh, of choice for a very long time. And for a very, very long time, tiger numbers were estimated by you know, just counting, uh, looking at pug marks in the sand, in the snow, and trying to you know, tell tigers apart by drawing them out and critically analyzing them. And as you can see, there's, you know, there's a potential for a lot of errors to creep into that. So you couldn't probably tell individuals apart as well as you can with, say, photographs or something. So a lot of these old estimates that exist uh, of tiger numbers are very difficult to verify um, and, and very difficult to actually set up as baselines as well. At best, you can call them guesstimates. Uh, and, you know, even, even if you had the most diligent, uh, you know, scientist looking through the bug marks and trying to identify individuals, you'd still, you know, you'd still have uh, a very large margin of error my, is my, my guess about it. Uh, so, yeah, so obviously, you know, the 3000 odd tigers that were estimated before 2010 as the baseline that set the baseline to the recovery of tigers is difficult to, to rely on. A few countries like India, for instance, had uh, a baseline set from camera traps uh, back in 2010. Uh, and I, well, there are other problems with it in terms of how expansive the sampling was and how representative the sampling was to actually be a reliable baseline. But you know, countries like India or Nepal at least had baselines that were set from camera trap data. Uh, but several other countries, for instance, Bangladesh or uh, even uh, Southeast Asia, many countries in Southeast Asia had, you know, baseline estimates set out of, um, you know, pug mark counts or other surveys where, you know, tiger signs were primarily the, uh, you know, method of estimating tiger numbers. So you've spoken a lot about um, the tiger counts in India, and India is obviously a flagship for tiger conservation. Are other survey methodologies used to estimate tiger numbers currently uniform across all tiger range countries? Can we expect um, robust results from every country, or or is it or is it varied? 
yeah so obviously you know um, the the methods used to analyze tiger numbers on the whole are kind of similar because everyone uses camera traps and everyone estimates density with pre- you know pretty much similar sounding methods uh, but obviously the complication comes when you are trying to estimate tiger numbers over very very large areas um, so there are some countries where there are just you know two to three sites that you know tigers exist so estimating tiger numbers there setting baseline setting you know understanding what the population is doing or how healthy it is is much easier as opposed to countries like say india again where you know you have so many landscapes that hold tigers and each of these landscapes are vast and and obviously estimating tiger numbers in that kind of landscape and such vast geographies is also uh, you know very difficult comes with its challenges and and you know that's where you know all of the methods that are used become pretty useful uh, important to understand because how do you go from a single estimate to an extrapolation for a landscape or how do you uh, you know how do you even go about uh, you know estimating how many tigers there are in an entire country based on small samples is you know is the is the tough part often and and again so countries like india have used multiple methods over the years uh, which actually also make it incomparable over years as well uh, because you know you 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 switch from and that's science right you you do move from one method to another and you 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 start improving and you get better but what what uh, what it does affect is you know strict comparisons to the baselines become tougher to do uh, you could have an a number estimated through one method that sets your baseline but you probably improved your method over the years and also expanded your sampling and a whole lot of other things and that you know leads you to a state where you have a new number but you don't really know if it compares to the previous one so that is a problem across countries again i would say you know methods do vary a little and again as i said it varies primarily because of uh, minor variations in how large the landscapes are how difficult it is to sample and survey and there are also some landscapes where you know camera trapping is just not easy to do uh, you, know, you go to sumatra for instance in indonesia it's very very difficult to get out camera traps over vast areas uh, so you know they they rely on uh, an occupancy based uh, assessment of of their tiger status so you know they they do large scale surveys across the island and try and look at where tigers are and and use those statistics to kind of inform how well tiger populations are are doing and and you know it's not it's not a population size but it's the next best thing it tells you where tigers are and you know are they persisting from the last survey over to the next survey in the same areas are they changing you know blipping out for instance so methods change and i i don't think it's ever going to be possible to get a single year snapshot of all the tigers in the world but that's also not required at the end of it. uh what you really need to know is how many populations are there that are healthy that are doing well and are contributing to population growth not just in that site but also across the larger landscape do you think there's maybe a slight over reliance on tiger numbers as a measure for conservation success is are there other measurements that could be used alongside these yeah for sure i think at the end of it the you know the question about tiger conservation success or for that matter any species conservation success is not just about how many num- how many tigers there are or how many elephants there are but it's 
you know, how healthy are those populations and are they going to really persist into the future? And I think that's, you know, and I think measuring that is the most important thing. So uh, obviously, you know, countries put in a lot of effort and time into estimating tiger numbers across the entire, you know, range within the country. That's a lot of, you know, a lot of area to cover, a lot of manpower to use and a lot of uh, financial resources that go into uh, you know, uh, counting tigers as well, which in some places could be better diverted to, you know, have targeted conservation actions to actually improve the state of tigers. So what's more important is to make sure that populations that are there are healthy. Uh, and by healthy, you mean, you know, they're surviving, you don't have too much unnatural mortality uh, that's, you know, basically depressing the population. Uh, you don't have too much poaching of prey Obviously, you know, individuals have to survive. So you need to have indiv high individual survival probabilities or high, you know, the rates of their survival have to be high. Uh, and one thing that we've seen over many, many populations is, you know, if females of the population, uh, lot, you know, stay longer in a habitat, uh, that really helps a lot because the longer a female stays, the greater she is, you know, um, uh, the more time she has to, uh, establish territory, breed in that area, raise her cubs, and let them, you know, disperse as well. So, you know, female tenure is is another very important metric that we've found over years to be, you know, quite quite indicative of how good a population is doing. And obviously, you know, you want to also see if there is breeding and cubs are surviving and and dispersing as well. So there are a lot of these what you know what in population ecology we would call vital rate parameters survival, immigration, the number of births, deaths, fecundity. So I guess then focusing on the outcomes of um, a lot of these population monitoring projects. So have policies which benefit tigers been implemented based off the results from some previous tiger counts? I, I think yes, for sure. Uh, I think, you know, most of the countries through the you know, Global Tiger Recovery Program uh, set baselines based on their initial estimates some of them have, you know, through the cycle, you know, improved their, their accounts and have improved their, uh, improved their methodology. So, you know, some countries that started off with PAGMA counts as their baselines went out, put camera traps and updated their numbers, um, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Uh, but, you know, I think those are also very important changes uh, that countries have made and, and sites have made, uh, because it's important to acknowledge that you know, your baselines are different um, and, and you have the right method now to, to monitor them. So I think that's one thing for sure that has happened, uh, like, you know, countries and sites adopting better practices, better methods to, you know, update their baselines. And I think, you know, that's, that's the first step. Uh, but after that as well, you know, once you know how many tigers there are, uh, the baselines that you set can really help, you know, set recovery targets. And this is something, again, in, you know, several countries across the range now, uh, you know, countries are setting very area-specific recovery targets uh, to, you know, to kind of achieve uh, the outcomes that they wish to, uh, you know, through a recovery program. And also, for instance, you know, if there are reintroductions or supplementation programs as well, uh, those, you know, those are really very, you know, uh, critical baselines to set before you, you go forward. Uh, but I think, in, you know, at a larger scale, uh, all of the countries that are, you know, at, at least this cycle of the, you know, global tiger recovery uh, program that's going to come up in later this year, I think most countries have kind of moved to, you know, camera trap based numbers, and and that's a big 
policy change as well. Uh, because now we have far more reliable numbers, at least, you know, the baselines that you can compare with similar methods, with, with similar uh, effort, and, and yeah, you can go forward. So I would say, you know, in looking at just tiger numbers as such, yes, certainly, you know, I think there's a there's been a lot of improvement based off the numbers from the past. Uh, and it's also obviously helping, uh, you know, reach those targets as well. So. Yeah, brilliant. So currently um, countries are doing their tiger counts and so we don't have any results yet for 2022. But do you believe any um, countries will have increased their tiger populations? How do you anticipate the counts, um, the results of the counts to go? Yeah, so I think the results of the counts will certainly show more tigers than than the previous uh, 2010 commitments. And, and, you know, we already kind of know that. Uh, countries like India probably already have more than double the numbers that they initially stated. Uh, you know, s- similar uh, you know projections with Nepal as well. Uh, probably have more tigers than they initially stated. But I think the caution here is, you know, we, we really can't go back to see how reliable some of those baselines were, and and that's that's where I think the uh, you know, I think that's where the comparisons become a little difficult to make. So uh, we may be getting closer to 6,000 tigers per range-wide numbers, uh, you know, but we just don't know where we started from. And although we we kind of have an estimate that says we started at 3,000 tigers, it's, you know, those those baselines are, are tough to verify. And I would say, you know, that's uh, become, you know, that's what adds to the complication of uh, estimating tiger numbers, part of it, uh, because, over these 12 years, as we talked about, you know, technology has changed. Um, our familiarity with tiger landscapes has changed. So if you look at most tiger surveys, year after year, they expand their sampling because they suddenly realize, oh, you know, we put cameras here this year, but we figured out that, you know, their camera, their tigers, even in the next patch. So let's put it out the next year. So year after year, there's been an expansion of sampling there's been an intensification of sampling in several sites as well. And all of these have contributed to more tigers being included into counts. Uh, not that, you know, not that they didn't exist. They probably existed even earlier, but they've now been included into counts. So these, you know, it's, so it's a, it's kind of a shifting baseline, uh, you know, as we've gone through these 12 years. And so, you know, for, um, for the lack of a better understanding, it's, you know, probably the, the number that we get in, in 22, 2022 is probably going to be the better of the baselines to use to compare our success uh, for the next 12 years. But that said, can countries recover tigers and can countries actually increase tiger numbers? I think that is happening at a site level. So there are several small sites that have increased tiger numbers. Uh, you know, sites in India, sites in Nepal, a uh, lot of sites, uh, you know, in mainly in South South Asia have, you know, seen, witnessed uh, good recoveries. And even in, you know, countries like Thailand have, have uh, witnessed uh, recoveries uh, in the last 10 to 12 years. So there are populations that are doing well and that are growing, but these aren't large populations that are contributing, you know, big jumps in tiger numbers. These are these are multiple small recoveries, which are very crucial, very, very critical, because they really kind of, you know, uh, we, we just not, we have more healthy populations, a lot more healthy populations now than we probably did, uh, you know, a few decades ago. But yeah, but I don't know how much it will contribute to overall country numbers. So obviously, then, if 
more tigers are getting included in the count. Does that mean then that potentially the counts will show growth, which there isn't actually there? And then that could potentially lead to complacency and protection. Is that something that you're worried about? Yeah, that, that certainly is a concern for sure. And, and you know, the, the, these can have, you know, different uh, outcomes as well. So when, when tiger numbers go up, for instance, you know, the red list species of, uh, you know, assessment that happens every, every so many years, you know, these assessments form as really large global you know, baselines to understand if tigers you know, species are moving towards extinction or probably getting recovered. Uh, but when, you know, when we have numbers that come in that are not reflective of true change and are not reflective of true growth or the true trends in tiger numbers, then there is a possibility that these so-called increases that we are seeing because of inclusion of counts could lead to uh, the uplisting of species and you know, uplisting of tigers, and that could have multiple effects, right? So yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, it's it's a great thing for tigers to go away from endangered and become, you know, a better category. But as long as that's not happening because of mistakes with the way we've counted tigers, that's okay, uh, right? It has to be a true growths that we want to uh, witness and true growths that we want to track. And you know, so a change in status of tigers could make funding agencies complacent, for instance. And, and you know, if, if tigers are considered recovered, then, you know, there is a chance that, you know, already meager uh, conservation money that comes into tiger conservation might even be reduced further. And, and all of that can, you know, really affect how tigers do in future. And that's the same thing with protected areas as well. So if, you know, if you have some tiger sites that, you know, you just think are doing better, there is a chance that, it, this complacency in terms of protection, in terms of policy, in terms of other uh, structures and institutions that kind of govern uh, the management of those sites. So yeah, so we should try and avoid that for sure. A huge thank you to Dr. Abhishek Harihar who took the time out of his busy schedule in India to share his knowledge and experience with us. After listening to both of our guests today, it's clear that counting tigers is a huge undertaking, but one that we've got significantly better at since the last year of the tiger. But what I really wanted to get their opinion on is whether doubling tiger numbers in 12 years was a realistic target. Here's what Dr. Jalla had to say. Well, whether it's biologically realistic or not is a question which one can debate and go on and on for that. But at that point in time, in 2010, when this pledge was made by Tiger Range country leaders, I think it was very significant because uh, you need a target to achieve. Okay? And even if you don't achieve it, you start moving towards that direction is a big step. Uh, and I think that was a very wise thing to do. Many of the countries at that point in time, and they still don't, have a baseline figure. Okay? So for example, Bangladesh was talking about 400 odd tigers. Uh, when in reality, they had no method to count them. It was only when we developed the method in Sundarbans on our side, and then we helped the government of Bangladesh to do it on their side, that they came up with a realistic number, which was close to about 150 odd tigers at that point in time. But they were very brave, uh, the government officials of uh, Bangladesh, to have declared that number. And the prime minister um, was very, very, I would say, very forward-looking to have embraced those numbers and publicly declared that this is the baseline, the real baseline, and we go in from here. So the tiger numbers dropped in Bangladesh. Um, not in reality, 
but figuratively speaking, because they had said 400 tigers, when in reality they had only 100 tigers. So many of the countries did not have a baseline. Malaysia, for example, you know, they're still struggling with their tiger numbers. Um, and they have, they're much richer than India, and the forests are much smaller, yet uh, their counts are far lacking in that, in that uh, line of thought. Um, Indonesia um, has done, I think, much better than many other countries. Um, in um, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos have lost the tigers. There's zero tigers. Their extinction has happened since uh, um, 2010. Maybe they never had those tigers in, in the first point, point of time. So these are issues which have come up. But the countries which have done really well is Nepal, uh, India. And I would also give credit to Bangladesh uh, to have done a great, uh, Bhutan, of course. Uh, has done wonderfully well uh, in terms of reaching the goal of doubling the tiger numbers. Biologically, yeah, I think it's possible to double tiger numbers in most of the areas and um, maybe not in the same time frame because the resource allocation is not the same uh, for all these countries which are very poor. Most of the Southeast Asian countries are very poor. The agenda there is driven by non-governmental organizations who actually fund conservation and not the governments themselves. So till the governments actually own this program and put in the national resources, uh, it's very difficult for tiger populations or for that any bio biological resource to improve and uh, you know, head towards conservation or recovery. It cannot be donor driven. It has to be driven by the national agenda. So Dr. Jalan made the good point there that although doubling tiger numbers across their entire range may not have been biologically realistic in just 12 years, it's clear that having a goal to work towards was necessary to galvanise support for tiger recovery. And this is a view which is also upheld by Dr. Abhishek Harihar. Biologically, doubling within 12 years was, I think, too ambitious target to set. It's you know it's 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 really really difficult and and it's not it's not an easy thing to do, um, and and you know even from experiences that we have across you know sites that are recovering, uh, you realize that those rates of recovery uh, are very difficult to achieve. You know you need you need a population that grows at over six percent per year uh, to give you uh, a doubling in twelve years, and that's you know that's uh, that you know six percent looks like a small number, but but the reality is that's a large number for you know a population to grow by uh, year after year, and for that to happen consistently across the tiger range is a very is a very difficult uh, you know feat. Uh, you know, just given tiger biology, given uh, you know, prey availability, and a whole lot of other conditions. So setting a target of doubling tiger numbers maybe was not biologically supported, at least within a twelve-year frame, but as a you know as a goal. You know, doubling tiger numbers is possible as long as those timelines are extended, and, and you know those timelines can be as long as we want them. And in fact, it's not just doubling; you could probably even triple tiger numbers if you had all the time in the world to to make it happen. That's because you know we have we have the space. There's almost you know this uh, according to an older estimate, there's there's something you know to the tune of about a million square kilometers of forests that a potential tiger habitat. Um, you know, that can have tigers in them. Although a lot of this is, you know, large, vast evergreen forests that can probably hold low densities of tigers and probably have very little prey right now. But nonetheless, you know, the, the habitat exists. But I think what's, what was necessary at that time in, in 2010, as tigers were blipping out in many Southeast Asian countries, 
uh, we needed a very, very strong political commitment. And the doubling tiger numbers was a catchy phrase. And it kind of really helped galvanize a lot of support at that point in time. And it really made a difference of, you know, getting countries on board and being proactive about tiger conservation. So, you know, as I said, there's, there's the biological side of that target, which was, you know, probably not realistic within 12 years, but the political side of that target was actually quite useful uh, in the sense it really brought people together, it brought countries together, it brought conservation NGOs together, uh, and it brought uh, a whole lot of, you know, civil society organizations together to, uh, you know, kind of save tigers. So it did really, in, in many ways was, you know, it really helped turn the tide for tigers back in 2010. So I think, you know, I think that that goal of doubling tiger numbers served two purposes <laughs> and, and probably had two, two angles to it. So there we have it. We've learned about the history of counting tigers and how baselines were set. We've heard about how these methods have developed over the years and the benefits and challenges this has created. Dr. Jala has given us an eye-opening insight of India's Guinness World Record holding tiger count. And we've heard from Dr. Harry Hart about some of the challenges associated with estimating global tiger numbers. It is clear that population monitoring and setting targets are vital in helping the world recover its tiger numbers. And both of my guests today play a crucial role in getting the most realistic estimates of tiger numbers. I will be waiting eagerly to see what the 2022 tiger counts reveal. And in the meantime, a massive thank you to both Dr. Jalla and Dr. Hariha for their insights today. And remember to look out for our next episode airing next month, where I'll be digging into more tiger conservation topics. Please do subscribe so you don't miss an episode and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.